the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a privilege and delight to welcome back to the show Professor Wilfred Riley. He is a professor of uh, political science at Kentucky State University. Uh, He is the author of several books, including Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, Taboo, Ten Facts, you can't talk about. Uh, Professor Riley, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you being with us as usual. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me back on the show. You betcha. Uh, I'm kind of doing a thing with conservatives here, uh, conservative intellectuals, public intellectuals, uh, as um, as we're closing out the year and talking to them about their, you know, what made them conservative, kind of their autobiographical, philosophical and political journey. Um, if there was a journey, uh, you might have been uh, conservative from the beginning. But uh, kind of what forms your worldview and hopefully um, audience, uh, which seems to be gelling to this series I'm doing, hopefully they can take uh, take something from from it. So if you don't mind, maybe just starting from probably something I asked you the very first time I ever interview you, which is, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself, how you grew up and how you came to be a, a political science professor? Yeah, so I actually did have a journey to Good. where I am right now. Um, so I, I didn't at all begin as a and I'm, I'm not a sort of rabid movement right wing, or not. There's necessarily anything wrong with that. But I'm I'm a kind of mainstream business world guy, very very pro Second Amendment, so on down the line. But the thing that makes me conservative, I suppose, is the idea, as someone who's usually in a leadership role, as a professor, a businessman, so on, without false modesty, the idea that things have to work, they have to function. And what brought me to that position was seeing that not happen a whole lot as a kid. So as a kid, I had kind of a a blue-collar childhood. I was born in Chicago. I was born on the south side of the city, actually, which is, I mean, kind of a a legendary area, maybe second only to similar areas in New York. I was actually born in Bridgeport, if I recall correctly, which is traditionally sort of Irish, black, Italian-American, very Chicago. Uh, My family, after a bit, moved to Wicker Park on the north side, which is another legendary Chicago neighborhood. And at this time, the late 80s, it was pre-gentrification. It was nicknamed Needle Park. Uh Aha. Yeah. It was was very much like an urban kid childhood. Like I was kind of between nerdy and athletic. I was a passable skater and I had my board. And I mean, this is is just, I mean, this is pre-Giuliani in New York, you Mm -hmm. know, and then Chicago is a little worse than New York. So you had, you know, the junkies everywhere and you had... Like, people would, couples would get on trains and start, you know, hooking up when I was coming home from school. People would get on the train and, you know, write graffiti. And there were also the beautiful things about the city. I mean, Grant Park and the Lions in front of the Art Institute. My, my family was stable. I had an enjoyable childhood. So certainly my mother was. But, I mean, that, that did kind of leave an impact. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up moving to the suburbs. But the suburb we moved to, East Aurora, was you, you again got to see those kind of processes in society. So that had been a mostly blue-collar, again, white and African-American suburb. And the issue there at that time was immigration. Oh. Um, you were starting to see large-scale Latino inflow into the USA, and in many ways that was great. But on the ground in those working-class communities, you were seeing the conflict between kind of the, the native, you know, white and black gangs and the incoming 
Latino young men. Mm. And so, I mean, for a couple of years when I was living there as a high school athlete, I mean, we were the murder capital of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You would go to parties and people would pull out pistols. Mm -hmm. And I mean, eventually, because I mean, I had a future academically and I I foolishly thought athletically, I just stopped going to parties. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you again saw this sort of, well, what's going on here? Is this normal? Do most people live like this? And the diversity there gave me a level of sympathy for, for example, poor white communities that I don't, I don't see a lot of in the popular press. I mean, I live in Appalachia right now, and this region's almost ignored. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I came up in this typical kind of the sort of blue-collar setting most Americans live in. I mean, the population of Appalachia is something like 30 million people, a lot of black Americans, so on down the line. Mm-hmm. And pretty conventional past that. I was fairly intelligent, so I went to the state university, didn't go Ivy or anything like that. Um, and didn't didn't make it into the athlete either. I mean, I worked and I got some scholarship money. So I went to Southern Illinois University mm-hmm. and graduated. And by this point, like I'd stopped screwing around. I was past being a young man. And I realized I was I had some potential in some of these fields. My my specialty was what you would call quantitative methods. OK, so you were in statistics, uh, poli sci type statistics kind of stuff. Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah, okay. And I, I was also pretty good at argument and debate. So okay. I applied to some grad schools and some law schools, and I, I got into both. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there's an element of humor here. I mean, I was in-state. I'm black. Like, my parents have gone to college. So, like, if I were with a friend, they could tease me about being, being an affirmative action in-state <laughs> legacy or something like that. You know, like, it didn't hurt. Yeah. But my board scores were also quite good. And, I mean, you know, the 1,400 range on the SAT. And so I, I just went to the best state school. I still didn't have the money to you know, go anywhere else. But I went to the University of Illinois for uh, law school. And again, at this point, as, as you kind of build up those building blocks to join sort of the lower upper class as you go through life, and a lot of men and women, I suppose, well, who become successful, you, you go step by step mm-hmm. like this. By this point, I was pretty confident that I was going to not only just make it out and become a coach or business person or something, but have the potential to have a fairly significant impact mm-hmm. going to politics, if that was a route I wanted to go or something. But uh, I ended up deciding, agreeing to get one more degree. I was contacted by Southern Illinois. They had a program. They were recruiting more males to get into their Ph.D. program uh, with the idea of sending people back into higher or secondary education. There's a program called DFI, uh, Diversifying the Faculty, targeted at at doing this. Uh So blah, blah, blah. I went back to Carbondale a couple years there. And at any rate, while completing the degree, kind of ending this story here, my mom got very sick. I ended up coming back to Chicago. And there was a kind of a building five years there where I did a whole bunch of things that later proved very useful. Um, I had a couple of extremely hard jobs. I mean, one of them was managing a street canvassing office where you're getting up at six in the morning. Well, I was one of the managers. But you're getting up at six in the morning. You're taking people out on all these crazy street campaigns. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that built up a certain level of grit. Um, I also did some things that were you know, pretty successful. At one point, I started my own business in kind of that social media space. It was called Event Collective. Um, you know, did some pretty significant things. Um, I worked in kind of that bullpen space. I worked on uh, one of the like guys on phone floors. We were doing more sales than trading. But for the American headquarters of Marcus Evans, which is in the Tribune mm-hmm. Tower mm-hmm. on Michigan Avenue, where it intersects with State Street, kind of the uh, LaSalle Street, kind of the Chicago Mag Mile mm-hmm. Wall Street equivalent. So I, I did all that for a couple of years. I got the degree. And then I went into, at that point, I mean, kind of like the romantic, you know, rise can, can the I ask you, could I, pause, yes, I got a job could, I, could I pause you to ask what your dissertation was on? 
Uh, yeah, my dissertation actually was on. That's one of the things also that moved me toward "quote unquote" the right. Yeah, my dissertation looked at the idea of white privilege to uh, see if it had any empirical basis, and it had none. Interesting. You were ahead of the curve on that. That wasn't a phrase that was that was too much in our vernacular in those days, was it? Well, in academia, it okay. was one okay. of the things that a lot of people minimize when they look at Twitter or they look at academia. Um, and they say, well, that's sort of that nerdy, that egghead, that rich kid nonsense. Well, fashion world, the same thing. What they don't understand is that unless that stuff is controlled, unless there's a conservative counter, unless it's regulated, that's going to be the same nonsense everyone's going to be saying in about 10 years. Yeah, that's right. I get that point. Sure, sure, sure. The, these yeah, ivory like towers have right. leaks. <laughs> yeah, like the Wuhan lab, uh, they have leaks. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. That's a great line. But right. like almost every phrase that we use in day-to-day life, like I, I didn't even think about this until the other day I read a paper in 19, it was written in, I believe, 1974 called The Three Worlds. And they were arguing that there were three bases of power in the world. One was the USA and its powerful allies like Britain, France, Japan. The uh, second was the Soviet Union and its powerful allies, Poland, so on down the line, China. And the third was the powerful unaffiliated countries, which at this time were starting to develop the bomb, India, Israel. And it struck me that that's where the phrase third world came from. Some Uh obscure academic Uh wrote it down. They used it in one television interview, and people took it, and that became a, a major element of the language. Huh. So uh, that's that's the impact of the academy. But my uh, my dissertation, basically, the first white privilege test that was ever done, and white privilege has been around in, in the wonk space, in the academy and the think tank since Peggy McIntosh in the 1980s. But m- the first test of white privilege was a guy named Andrew Hacker, who's a smart, funny guy, by the way. I don't think he's a crazy woke But in the early 1990s, he asked a bunch of white guys how much money they'd have to be paid to be black. Mm -hmm. And the average answer is $50 million. Now, first of all, there's some kind of methods problems with this. Like he asked, (laughs) I mean, he asked a bunch of Irish dudes in Queens. That's where he teaches. So I don't know if that's the best sample, you know, but at any rate. But beyond, beyond sort of the neighborhood jokes, he asked a bunch of white guys how much they'd be paid to be black, and the answer is $50 million over the course of my life, a million a year. And the assumption was, and this is, this is published very seriously, this is in a book called Two Nations that sold 8 or 10 million copies, yeah. a best-selling book, it certainly outsold any of my books. Yeah. But the assumption was that you would see the reverse pattern, I think, with, with blacks, Asians, Hispanics, that members of minority groups in a racist society would be expected to devalue their identity. Hold that if thought real found- quick. That's, a, that's, an, that's really interesting. I remember the Andrew Hacker craze, too. Let me take a quick commercial break. Let me pick up sure. on that, and we'll, we'll pick up on that reverse thought, uh, the reverse thought experiment. Our guest is uh, Professor Wilfred Riley. He is a professor of uh, political science at Kentucky State University, author of several books, part of the 1776 Unites Project as well. We'll talk about that with him when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have uh, Professor Wilford Riley with us, author of uh, several books, uh, Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, Taboo, Ten Facts That You Can't Talk About. Uh, we're talking about his intellectual and professional journey in our series on uh, how uh, conservative uh, public intellectuals uh, became conservative public intellectuals. You were talking about the Andrew Hacker study, uh, Professor, and uh, you you were saying there was an interesting question you had or others were having about did it work in the reverse? Was there a price? Do I have this right? Was there a price someone would pay 
to go from minority status to white, right? Did, did I pick that up about about correctly? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. Okay. So uh, hackers' whole assumption and the entire assumption underlying white privilege theory, when you think about it, is that the value of whiteness has to be unique. For hackers' result to mean anything, mm-hmm. it would have to mean that white people are uniquely valuing their identity because of the value of whiteness and, you know, this racist... Mm-hmm sexist, heterosexist, blah, blah, blah society. If all he found was that everyone is mildly racist, so you value your identity at a few hundred thousand dollars a year, that doesn't mean anything at all, with no disrespect to the rest of his work. So I was curious about how minorities would respond if you asked them the exact same question. So for my dissertation, what I did was a more formalized version of the experiment, where I rounded up several thousand people. I mean, we were literally going into classes, myself and a couple of students who agreed to work on this, as I recall. And we were administering these anonymous five- or six-page surveys. And we were asking people, you know, if this were possible, if this experiment could exist, we formalized the experiment from what he asked, would you be willing to change your race? And we also threw in your sex. Uh, your sexual orientation, and your religious tradition. Mm -hmm. And if you'd be willing to do that, how much money would you demand to to make that move? And what we actually found is that, first of all, most people wouldn't change these things at all. The majority of whites wanted to remain white, blacks wanted to remain black. These are students at a pretty good state university. Most people said, well, I'll make the money I need in my life as it is. But if you actually just wanted to look at monetary value for those people who agreed to change, like the most racially identified group was black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asians were right up there. All the minorities combined demanded more money than whites did. No kidding. So the, the flip of the white privilege experiment is that the test that's used to show white privilege, actually, if you give it to everybody, shows that minorities are more racist than whites. If you even view that as a measure of racism, right. I just view it as a measure of kind of harmless pride. Right. So right. that that was one of those that actually became my first book because no it was kidding. such a striking finding. No kidding. No kidding. Oh, oh, that would be the fifty million dollar question. I see that as a book of yours. Is that was that what came out yeah. of your dissertation? Okay, okay. Yeah, with a obscure academic press that probably, you know, contacts a good number of the, the dissertation writers annually. But yeah, it, it became a book. It's actually sold a decent number of copies. And I think it's it's an interesting, you know, academic tome. But the the important thing about this, actually, going beyond me, is that because the academy leans so far left, mm-hmm. and even hackers are traditional liberal, yeah. we find that this keeps happening. So, for example, something that's actually very important along these lines, there's a set of questions that's used to measure what's called authoritarianism. Right. Are people dangerous potential dictators? Right. And for 50 years, since a guy called Theodore Adorno wrote, yep. We've thought that conservatives are more prone to authoritarianism. This is the authoritarian personality thesis, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we recently found out that he was wrong. Mm. The 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 only reason that we've thought this is that people were doing hacker-style tests. Like, they were giving people questions where the boogeyman figures, if this makes sense, were all on the left. So it was like... How important do you think it is that society restrain communists, restrain BLM rioters, restrain environmental protesters, restrain Muslim terrorists? And a kid at Emory University, not a kid, he's like 30 now, he's probably better with methods than me, but like a researcher who was on the center right down in the south decided to just flip the questions and ask people, you know, how important do you think it is that we restrain 
anti-maskers, proud boys, so on down the line. And what he found is that people on the left are on average more authoritarian than people on the right, in kind of a less tough, kind of more screechy, more school marmish way. But on average, they score at least as highly as authoritarian. So So you keep seeing these oversights. Yeah. So interesting. Now, so you 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 were steeped in this kind of study at, at an academic intellectual level, and you decided uh, at some point, I assume, to apply to become a professor, to apply for a tenure track position uh, ba- based on on your political science uh, bona fides and interests. Yeah, well, I, I think that almost anyone, unless you go into very serious industry, unless you want to open up new markets for Boeing or something like that, I mean, almost everyone with a PhD in one of the quant sciences is going to go teach. Okay. I mean, even now, they're you know, outside of something like you know chemistry. There, there aren't that many labs. There, there are a few elite think tanks like AEI, but you normally have to kind of make your bones before you go there. That's so right. there aren't that many... I mean, of course, you can go get a job. I could have gone back to the markets pretty easily. Sure. But it, it generally, if you get an advanced degree, you're going to go teach. You're going to go to a college, a university, an elite prep school. So when I there actually is an entire website, uh, academicjobfinder.com. Mm-hmm. So when I got the PhD, I mean, I just printed out the CV, the academic version of a resume, as you know, and put it up on uh, AJF. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I started getting a bunch of responses and you know, probably for the same reasons. Like, I happen to be reasonably personal. I have personable. I happen to have built a pretty good network. Um, you know, I'm a black dude, but I'm not crazily woke. So, I mean, it's twofer. You know, I'm I'm in the Midwest. I'm in the heartland of the country, so I was available for most interviews. And generally, you go kind of a half step down from where you matriculated. So I, I was from the University of Illinois and Southern Illinois, so the the offers I was getting were from this, this didn't get close to final talks, but it would be from like Coastal Carolina, for example. I gotcha. But one was from Kentucky State. Okay. And that was a state university in a part of the country I like a lot. I knew Kentucky because I'd gone to Southern Illinois, and so I came down here. We did the interview. I you know toured the campus, and they, they made an offer, and I was was glad to accept the offer. So now, here I am, as, uh, as the Lord said. Yeah, and and to all of our benefit, uh, of course, it's interesting to me that uh, a professor, uh, an academic in methodology, um, has broken out and broken through into the popular culture and the popular dialogue uh, of political conversation beyond just, you know, the methodological stuff, the, you know, I don't mean to diminish this, but you know what I mean, not the eggheaded stuff, but, you know, the real issues of the day that are being debated uh, every night on the news or every day at this on the floor of the House of Representatives or the floor of the Senate. I have to take another real quick commercial break, but I wonder if we when we come back, I can ask you a little bit about, given your background, given your research, how the university and academia found you, treated you. Were you what they expected, or did you kind of fly against the grain? Were you a bit of a gadfly, given your political uh, perspectives? Um, if I can get into that a little bit when we come back, that would be fantastic. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Wilford Riley. Hate crime hoax, how the left is selling a fake race war, taboo, 10 facts you can't talk about. He is uh, part of the 1776 Unites Project, which we've had him and Bob Woodson on to talk about in the past. He and I will be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Our guest this hour is Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University. Many of you know his works uh, from uh, this show and many, many others. Uh, Professor, I I guess it would be fair, you correct me anytime I get anything wrong, but I guess it would be fair to, to say most academics, most PhDs, there's an assumption of a tilt to the liberal or to the left. Um, I suppose, given some of your other uh, uh, geographic and, and cultural background, there might be certain assumptions. Did you find that once you went into the tenure track uh, position at a university, in your case, Kentucky State, that you were considered a bit of a gadfly or were you treated differently because of your political perspectives that didn't quite match up perhaps with the liberal left-wing notion that most of us feel there exists in higher academia? I think in Kentucky, so I haven't actually had that experience, but I think part of that is because I am at a good, like top two, three hundred school, but not sort of an Ivy League coastal institution that would feel the need to virtue signal constantly about these issues. I mean, so Kentucky State, first of all, is a historically black college. Right. Um, and so our entire leadership team, which includes probably 10 to 20 percent conservative guys, as the black community itself does, is black. No kidding. Okay. So, okay. yeah, there, so there's really not a whole lot of space for, well, we've certainly had white executives as well. We actually don't discriminate. But I mean, right now, top 10 guys are black. I mean, I've been on our executive team. I was our ombudsman for a while. But it's kind of hard to, quote-unquote, blame the white man or to do an incredible amount of virtue signaling if everyone responsible for the budget, so on, is a wealthy black guy. Okay. So I I haven't really had that experience. I mean, we're a southern school. Um, All the decision makers are black, so there's really, right now, so there's really no one to blame outside the enterprise, which cuts off a lot of the racial grievance stuff. And I don't think most of our presidents, most of our leaders would really have a lot of tolerance for that kind of stuff anyway, as you know, African-American men running a university. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen that much of it. I would actually, as a recommendation, because your show has quite a good audience, for some of the parents out there, I would actually recommend the Kentucky states. It depends on whether you're looking for that very diverse ambiance. It depends on, on family, athletics, and things like that. But I would recommend some of those colleges that are that are quite good, and you can tell simply by looking at you know U.S. Uh, News and World Reports average SAT and so on. But that aren't attempting to kind of lead the country in demonstrating how woke they are. Interesting. So good, good. I'm I mean, glad you're saying this. This is this is refreshing. Keep going. This is great. Yeah. But I mean, there's an entire network of these sort of mid-sized Southern colleges. I mean, again, if you're into the HBCU model, there are 136 historically black colleges. Mm-hmm. They're certainly very diverse, but not remarkably woke. You'd, you'd be surprised. There are, I think, 46 military schools. It goes well beyond West Point. There's the Citadel and so on down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all the A&Ms. You've got two in every state, Texas A&M and so on down the line, which are very much, you know, they party, but very pro-American, bonfires, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it, then you just have all of the schools, Washington and Lee and so on, that exist in every state that are still focused on kind of the collegiate tradition. I mean, Greek life, football in the fall, that kind of thing, your studies. Many of these tend to be very heavily focused in STEM in terms of the graduates they put out. I mean, I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and a bleep of an engineer. <laughs> you know, so I mean, like, I, I think that that is where I might target my son or my daughter 
if I were getting ready for college. You know, the A&Ms, certainly for ethnic families, the HBCUs, maybe military school if that's your thing, those, those great private schools that are in every state. We tend to focus a lot of the discussion on education on eight or nine bespoke colleges that no one actually goes to. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I have no hate for the Ivy League, but I mean, like, Harvard, you know, best school in the country, maybe the world. But when you get down to, like, Brown, I honestly don't think that our faculty at Kentucky State or the University of Kentucky, I don't think we're trailing their faculty by more than an IQ point or two, and I, I think we're a little less burdened with sort of crazy theory. Oh, I'm, so sure, that's, you, I'm sure that's accurate. Yeah, I'm sure that's absolutely accurate. Um, let, let, so what's interesting, I'm, I'm heading in, this was a short segment, I'm heading into a, one more break, so we'll come back with a longer one, but I guess what I want to head into then from there is if, if you didn't see much of this uh, uh, pseudo-sophisticated wokeism at Kentucky State University, something motivated you, clearly something motivated you to go into the public forum, into the public foray, to take it on elsewhere, and I'm wondering if when we come back, we might talk a little bit about that, taking on um, the kind of wokeism that you do get from your Browns and your Harvards and your even, I guess there's a woman professor from Rutgers making a lot of news uh, today for going after Whitey and that sort of thing. I'd love to I'd love to pick your brain when we come back from that. What what had you decide to enter the public uh, forum on those issues when things were actually very comfortable for you at Kentucky State University. Why did you decide to m- be uncomfortable? We'll be right back. We have been delighted to be uh, talking with uh, Wilford Riley, Professor Riley at Kentucky State University, author of several books, including Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, all these books available online uh, uh, for sure, if that's easier, and uh, maybe would be really good Christmas, holiday, Hanukkah gifts. So, Professor, you were saying at Kentucky State University, your political predilections and perspectives weren't so alien um, uh, or weren't looked at as alien. You decided to go into the public sphere beyond Kentucky State with your arguments, your research, and your intellect. What made you decide to do that? Was there something, uh, to paraphrase Churchill, up with which you could no longer put, so to speak, or what was it? Well, sort of. I mean, I I think that in addition to teaching at K-State, which, again, is quite a good college and involved in the national debate, we're expected to publish and to go to the major conferences in our field Mm -hmm. and so on down the line. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, in addition to that, if you're involved in standard upper-middle-class discourse. I mean, I I go on your show, I watch TV, I watch Fox and CNN. I mean, it's impossible to avoid some of this stuff. I mean, like when you mention uh, Professor Crunk, quote-unquote, like that's a a colleague. That's a a person in a field that would be like one door down the the social science hallway from my own at, you know, a peer school, Rutgers. So, I mean, like when you see someone say something like that, like, I mean, her comment was, what was it, you know, Africans and Native Americans were peacefully sailing around the world and trading with each other for millennia, and then, you know, the white devils got involved and started exterminating people, so we might have to wipe out the whites. I mean, yeah. it's a bit of a paraphrase. Yeah. But, I mean, like, when you start seeing this kind of nutty stuff, and by the way, like, she wasn't at all censured or sanctioned. No, for that. I mean, right. she's currently joking right. about it on Twitter. Right. So it's not even that she said something racist and she got a six-month suspension, as you would if you were 
a black professor who insulted Israel or a white professor who insulted blacks or something like that. She got no penalty of any kind. Um, and in fact, is apparently getting, you know, joking backpats or getting bought drinks and so on if you follow the thread. But I mean, like when you see that, obviously, if you're not a bigot, there is a duty to respond to it, just as there'd be a duty to respond if, you know, a white Italian American or whatever said that about African American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that that was part of uh, getting involved in the political debate. Sure. And, it was pretty, it's pretty unavoidable. I mean, if you watch, again, like I said, Fox or CNN, you see these issues 24-7. Yes, you do. And you see, as you also point out, a lot of agreement with that perspective, particularly in the academy. But, you know, outside of the academy, you teamed up with Bob Woodson and a few others to kind of confront the 1619 Project and your 1776 Unites, too, right? I mean, this was important to you. Why, if I might ask? Well, I, I think I do think that this stuff, without getting into the whole like the groomers versus the Nazis debate on social media, sure, because this is sure, said more right. politely and more usefully when you actually get into like the board meetings and right, so on. Right. And that, that's where I prefer to be, actually, with that business background, as opposed to being outside with a sign shouting. <laughs> as, again, as a note for those actually changing minds and educating people. I get it. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah book yeah. your ten minutes of time yeah. and show up in a suit. Yeah. I mean, but anyway, like so. But leaving that aside, the basic point that the two groups of parents are arguing about is not funny at all. It is an existential reality that what you teach kids shapes the next generation. That's actually how I took a job at a fairly elite level in education. I mean, we're, to some extent, we're not kidding around here. So, like, if you teach kids, the thing that I want to emphasize about this Professor Crunk stuff is that it's not like it's brilliant, painful sort of ancient wisdom that whites and middle-class blacks are just too dumb and afraid to learn. It's just nonsense. Mm. Like, the idea that the Aztecs had highly advanced sailing technology and were the most peaceful people in the world is just gibberish. Mm -hmm. They were some of the greatest warriors in history, and their boats were made out of reeds. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so 1619 was another variation on kind of the same nonsense. I mean, the the United States was founded to preserve slavery. The British were about to eliminate it. The British didn't eliminate slavery in their overseas empire until almost 1840, just to you know, bring up some actual historical facts. Sure. We, by the 1860s, were fighting a war to eliminate. Like, there's, there's all, virtually no difference there. So the, these things struck me as very dishonest. And when you started seeing people like Glenn Lowry and someone calling on board, it was hard not to. Yeah. And we also thought it was important that the kind of the response be at least 50 percent black led, okay. because it's very easy to look at even a group of obviously non-racist people. I mean, like Heather McDonald, for example, a great person. She's not a racist. You know, Mo- the majority of like Tucker Carlson, for example, I know a friendly lady. He's not racist. But it's very easy to take someone, especially someone on the right, someone a little bit acerbically witty and say, well, that person's a bigot. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to, to take Bob Woodson mm-hmm. and say, well, that person's a bigot. That right. person doesn't support black business. That person's a white racist. Right. So that was, the, that was the basis of 1619. You have to respond to this stuff before it's fed to kids, and it would be useful to have some minorities doing it. You know, it's interesting you say that. My mind went to, you know, there's always someone willing to push the envelope, and I guess sometimes it is the mainstream media. The 1619 Project is the New York Times, but the L.A. Times did do it. <laughs> the L.A. Times did it to Larry Elder, didn't they? They, they called oh, yeah. him the black face of white supremacy. So there, there, is, there is a level of it, I guess, and maybe it goes to the kinds of times we live in, or maybe the desperation. Is it desperation that makes them, that drives them to that kind of stuff? Is it 
uh, is it such an ardent ideological rigidity? Hannah Arendt once said, "There's nothing so powerful as ideology." Is that some of it too? Well, it, it's just Chappelle's show stuff. I mean, like the first episode of Dave Chappelle's great old comedy series was him joking about similarities between black and redneck culture and the stupidity of racism, and his character was a blind black-white supremacist. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it's the same thing. Like, Larry Elder, they called him the black face of white supremacy. Yeah. The same thing. Uh, Herschel Walker, right. you know, RIP his campaign, you yeah. know, but it was a long fight between him and Raphael Warnock that went to basically overtime. Both candidates in that race, quote-unquote, strong black men, yep. whatever their personal issues. Yep. But, I mean, so after Warnock or after uh, Walker lost to Warnock by 1% or whatever it was, Wajahat Ali, the uh, journalist and podcaster, commented on him and said anyone that voted for Herschel Walker, their religion's not Christianity. Their religion is white supremacy. Yeah. And I and a bunch of other people responded and were like, well, okay, it, it, it's one thing if you prefer one black dude with marital issues to another black dude with marital issues, but... Wajahat, do you understand that you're describing a race between two black millionaires yeah. in a 50% black state as white supremacy? <laughs> like, is there any shame ever for you guys? <laughs> and his comments just like, oh, screw off, right? But it was, it, it, like, it's, it, it, there is, if you're not racist and you're arguing with these guys, I really think that unless you're debating a few issues like healthcare, they don't have very much. Yeah. Yeah, this 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 is the last maybe the last refuge and and the la- and the last thing they do have. I only have about uh, a minute left with you. Do you have an explanation as to why so much of the black vote did go to Raphael Warnock over Herschel Walker? I think it was like ninety five five or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, some of it's Walker's issues, but I mean, uh, or yeah, Walker's issue. But I mean, at the same time, Warnock was yeah. accused of you know, yeah. striking his wife with a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, the, and it, it's just almost a at, at any rate. I think that that one of the things that's insane is that that's the usual pattern for the black vote. The Republicans get eight percent. Yeah. Why is that? I think that over a period of more than forty years, the the Democrats have become very effective at convincing black people that the Republicans are Nazi racists who genuinely want to you know, bring back slavery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to put y'all in chains, mm-hmm. Joe Biden. I mean, and a large number of brothers of African-Americans genuinely believe this. Mm-hmm. Like, I voted for both parties. Again, I'm conservative, but not the, the most rabid of right-wingers. But even saying that is considered extremely heterodox. And yeah. it's, it's going to be – there's not necessarily a positive ending. It's going to be very difficult to overcome that. And it's going to require outreach on both sides. I'm not just going to hold that up to the GOP. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take, take some change, take some patterns. I do think that one thing that's going to happen is as more Hispanic Americans start voting Republican, there is going to be a kind of a choice confronting yeah. black America. Like, are yeah. you are you going to it's going to be very hard to claim racism when you see yeah. like Afro Latino Cuban guys. Yeah. Are you going to make your vote matter or are you just going to stay over here and continue to believe this? It's, it's a tough question. Well, we'll leave it on the question because you are such a uh, dear friend of the show. We'll pursue it uh, in our next interview, perhaps. But thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you for your scholarship. Thank you for uh, helping be one of not just uh, the students at Kentucky State University, but America's teachers. Sir, Wilford Riley, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be back with a final thought.
Portions of the show have been brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. If you are concerned about stock market volatility, they have an investment in a portfolio, a secure and collateralized portfolio, not correlated to the stock market, where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time time. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right. Up to 10 and a quarter percent. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. Uh, this series I am undertaking uh, with public intellectuals uh, on their journeys to and in conservatism, I hope it will uh, prove valuable over time as, uh, you know, I am convinced more than anything that uh, these young people, these young minds, whether they are in college or whether they are college age, whether they graduate uh, from high school or whether they don't, um, we are all implored to teach our children well. That means America's children as well, not just the students in the classrooms of these professors. That's why we bring them on. These Some of these great minds have a lot to teach American students wherever they are. And I'd like to think that everyone really is a student if they have at least a little bit of an open mind. If they don't, that's an entirely different problem, and we'll have to talk about that another time. But in the meantime, we have rich reservoirs that are not just confined to places like Claremont or Kentucky State University or here or there, Hillsdale, where you may find them. Uh, through, um, through talk radio, through social media, these guys are worth reading. They're worth listening to. And um, I think, I think the more we can project their voices, the more we can begin to start reclaiming the young minds that uh, we're going to need going forward if we're going to save this, the last best hope of Earth. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. Jeremy David, thank you for producing today. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all. And class, this class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 